Warning, this podcast is known by the state of California to contain spoilers. Faster than a bastard maniac. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, listeners. We we are in for a treat. It's a baby season here again on Sequel Cast 2. Yeah, we're wrapping up our look at the uh, initial batch of Elm Street films with Elm Street 5. And you might ask, why are we stopping with Elm Street 5? Well, part of the reason is to give us a bit of a break to prevent burnout, but the other reason is this sort of wraps up a sort of trilogy of sorts that starts with Elm Street 3. We had, you know, Kristen, and then in 4 she transfers her powers to Alice, and 5 focuses on Alice. As the poster says, Freddy delivers. This came out in 89. (laughs) And um, they really were pumping these films out. Directed by Stephen Hopkins, a screenplay by Leslie Boehm. Based on a story by John Skip, Craig Spector, and Leslie Boehm. Uh, starring Robert England and Lisa Wilcox. Music by Jay Ferguson. Cinematography, Peter Levy. Um, this had a budget of $6 million and it made $22 million, uh, domestically. Which you think, well, that's not bad. But it actually is one of the uh, lowest grossing films in the series. So, by whatever reason, the Freddy saturation, I think, between the TV show and the movies coming out back to back to back to back... Um, people had a bit of Freddy fatigue and maybe it's just the concept that's not too inspired. I was, um, watching, I was watching a documentary where they talked to, um, Rachel Talloway, who directed the sixth film, but she, I think, started as, like, script supervisor on the, and she worked on all the other Freddy Krueger films except for five, and she felt on Street Five, she felt bad for the director because he had the least amount of prep time and she argued the least inspired um, script to work on for his film. Yeah, and, and even then, there are some. There are. This is an intriguing concept for a nightmare film. However, there, this the script doesn't live up to the concept, unfortunately. No, and there's stuff they could have worked with here. The director, Stephen Hopkins, he's uh, better known for doing things like Predator 2 or uh, The Ghost in the Darkness. Uh, he also did or the, the Lost, Lost in, in Space, Lost in Space film. Yeah, from the 90s. Um, he's done a lot of television, uh, like like 24 and House of Lies and Californication. And he did a really good um, movie, I think, for Showtime called The Life and Death of Peter Sellers with Jeffrey Rush. Mm. Yeah, I've seen that. Very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Quite good. Um, but yeah, Elm Street 5. Um, did, is the first time you watched it for the show, Thrasher? This this is, uh, strangely enough, 
This is the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie I remember seeing any of. My earliest Nightmare on Elm Street memory is the scene from this film where Freddy is feeding souls through an umbilical cord into a fetus. Ah, uh, that scene, yeah. Um, this movie, Although I Although this is the first time I've seen the whole movie was in prep for the show. Yeah, um, this movie I always have trouble making my way through when I can't understand why. I think the plot is sort of a mess. Um, I admire that they're trying to make things darker. You know, they're trying to take a step back after Elm Street 4. And, and, but uh, on the other hand, you get um, a, a storyline that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You get, because of the MPAA, um, a lot of the, the death scenes are sort of neutered in this one. Mm. And The blood has never looked faker. Yeah. Uh, also, the blood looks like cranberry sauce. It does. And... Um, on, on one of the store special, bought, not homemade. Yeah, store store bought jelly cranberry sauce. Um, in, in one of the um, special features, uh, one of the writers of the film says he, he feels like they uh, misjudged the audience and didn't realize that people came to this movie to see really crazy kills, and he doesn't feel they delivered on that. Um, I, I will say one of the nightmare scenes in this is one of my favorites in the series, but it's I, I don't know it. There's a lot of problems here, and it's um, it's overcomplicated for no good reason. And and yet there there is a seed of a good idea in here because one one thing that I I look for in in franchises uh, is whether or not they grow or grow up or grow with their audience. And the idea because you know Freddie up until this point he's always been going after the Elm Street children, but he's been going after them for over five years. Uh, that's enough time for many of these children to become adults. So the the thought that he would be going after, quote-unquote, the Elm Street grandchildren is is a fascinating concept. The idea that the horror of Freddy Krueger could become generational is very intriguing, but the, the, the film, unfortunately, doesn't tackle it from that angle. Well, and, and one, one of the things they mentioned in the documentaries is, um, you know, it, it's teenagers going to see these films, and do teenagers want to see a movie about, you know, an evil baby? Like, they might be scared of, you know, getting their um, girlfriend pregnant or becoming pregnant. But I think when you get to the point of the sequel of, oh, it's a baby, or, you know, as they say in the trailer, it's a boy, it's a boy. Um, <laughs> you, you know, you, you kind of jump off a ledge, whether it's Little Fockers or Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, or... Um, you know, Ace Ventura Jr. or whatever it is. It <laughs> when you introduce like a baby into it, it, it usually, with the exception of like Adam's Family Values, it just gets a bit tired. <laughs> son of Mask. So, son of Mask, right? It, it's just <laughs> one of those things that you know this this isn't the the best. Um, I will say though that the poster to this film was featured heavily in, in a scene in the movie It uh, that just came out. And that got a big laugh out of the audience. Even though nobody points out the poster, they just walk past a theater that has a lot of these movie posters for Elm Street 5. <laughs> and you could argue It was inspired by the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. You know, certainly there's elements of that with the, the kids and the dreams and so forth. But, um, yeah, this, this begins with footage that looks like outtakes from the room where you get a, a sex scene with a lot of butts. Um, in blue well, lighting. Well, there's so many weird close-ups and weird angles in this opening sex scene. 
it's like I I don't understand how these people's erogenous zones are connected. Well, it's it's not even the actors either. It's like stunt people. Oh yeah, it's it's definitely body doubles. Body doubles. Um, you know, just to give a, a an overall picture of of the plot, Alice has returned, uh, but it turns out she's pregnant. She has a bunch of friends that die in in dreams, and she has to work with uh, Freddy Krueger's mother, Amanda Krueger. That's right from the third film. Except in this one, she's younger. She's not an old ghost woman. To defeat Freddy Krueger once and for all. That's you know, uh, defeat him once and for all again. Right, and that's loosely the plot in this one. You do get Lisa Wilcox returning as Alice, um, which is nice that it's not a different actress. Although I, she's not especially compelling in this film either, and I don't think it's her fault. I don't know. It's just it's well, this <sighs> movie, this movie sort of forgets that the previous movie happened, like to the point where like Alice no longer has control of dreams. She's lost all the dream powers that she gained from people. Um, and her character development seems to have washed away. I mean, she ended that movie as a pretty confident, independent person, but she, she to a point, regresses to being a damsel in distress throughout most of this film. And yet, I think the way the movie starts, uh, aside from the, the sort of awkward sex scene, isn't bad. You have Alice taking a shower, and, and the shower is bubbling up this green goop from... Uh, yeah, and, and from then the it, drain, yeah. From the drain, and she's almost in sort of a shower um, with with the glass door that almost like what you'd see like on a ship or something. But she's it starts filling up with water, and then all of a sudden she is um, inhabiting Amanda Kruger in the dream, and we get to see, you don't see it, but you certainly get the prelude to the the rape sequence, and we see one of the rapists is. Uh, in the asylum is played by Robert England, which at first I thought like, oh, that's sort of slick. But then they do like a lot of really extreme close-ups that <laughs> make it's it very subtle. obvious. No, no. And at first I thought they were going to do it subtle, and like that would have been kind of cool. But um, all right, so we need okay, we need to talk about this because we we learn of Freddy Krueger's secret origin in the third film that his mother yes. was a nun who worked at a mental institution. That's right. She was locked into the worst wing of the hospital over the holidays and and was was sexually assaulted by all the inmates. And he you know was born quote unquote the son of a hundred maniacs. Mm-hmm. But so even in and the history of, of mental health treatment is is spotty at best uh but even in the worst periods of the way the medical system treated people with severe mental mental health problems the idea that a person would get locked in a wing of an institution over the holidays so what they just locked these people in a building and left them there for a week or more well, not just that, you know, I, um, once I, once I dated a, a woman who, her job was working for the state, um, and doing counseling service to, um, people that had committed, uh, sex crimes, mm-hmm. and, and she would mention going in, into prison to talk to her clients, and she would have to put her hair up, she'd have to wear, like, long sleeves, like, there was a very specific way she had to dress to not draw attention to herself, mm-hmm. like, but not only that, like, they have... Even asylums, I would imagine, it's not quite the same as a prison, but procedures are in place. That doesn't mean things don't happen. But well, no, no, no. The idea that, that some, the, it's the idea that as horrific as it is, the idea that a nun could be trapped by these people and they could do terrible things to her 
the seed of that is something that could happen, but the idea that they just lock a whole wing of the museum for a week, or the museum, a whole wing of the asylum for a week, and nobody checks in on anybody just seems preposterous. Because how are they eating? How are they eating if there's no staff there to prepare food? And they sort of retcon it, don't they, with this uh, dream sequence? Because you, the, the guys are, you know, wanting to, the, the guards are wanting to go on a break. And then she's trapped in there. They don't say she's there for a whole week. And I, I'm just glad we don't really see it. It's well, yeah, that's implied. true. That might be. It, it, <laughs> while it might make for an interesting parallel to be to to have that dichotomy between a a sensitive and loving scene of lovemaking and then a scene a scene of sexual assault, it pro- it probably would be too horrific to actually depict that within this film. I mean, it's it's too real of a horror. It's not a nightmare horror. Right, and then we, we get this followed up with, you know, the first of many problems in this film. Freddy Krueger as a baby? This is just nonsense. <laughs> I, I kind of liked the Freddy Krueger baby puppet, although I although I wish, I wish that it had done more. I wish we got to see the baby puppet attacking and killing people. Like, it's just goofy mm-hmm. enough. It's goofiness is why I like it. I, I, and if they had let the baby kill people... I think that would have been great. But yeah, we do get another dream sequence where in the dream, Amanda Kruger gives birth to a mutant Freddy baby, which then crawls into the dream church from the previous film, crawls into Freddy's clothes and inflates. And we get that immortal line of Freddy growing to his adult height and going, it's a boy! Oh, it's... Ugh. I mean, Fre- the puppet Freddy, is well... is the 1960s Joker in this movie. Yeah, you know, the, the puppet is well done, but it's, um... Cheese. And, and we also get the stuff with uh, Dan, who was in the first... Or in the last film. Um, he's really into his vehicles, and he has a, a dream sequence, which I think is one of my favorite in the series, which is very H.R. Giger. Well, I'll say there are some very inventive dream sequences. Yeah. Um, Not necessarily scary, but very inventive. Right, where he is on... Um, well, he's driving, trying to... He's, he's on worried, a motorcycle. He's worried about Alice, so he tries to yeah. drive to get her, and his car and his truck breaks down, so he steals a motorcycle, drives the motorcycle, but the motorcycle, like... A, a really cool mechanical Freddy head grows out of it, and the motorcycle starts merging with his body until he eventually becomes this weird cyborg skull motorcycle man who then gets into a horrific crash, and then we cut to the real world, and his truck has hit a a delivery truck, and he's dying upside down in a flaming truck. And I mm-hmm. do like the fake-out when Alice goes to, to, to rush to her boyfriend the door to the big the big rig opens up and a guy jumps out who at first you think is Freddy Krueger, but it's just a trucker wearing the same clothes as Freddy. Yes, that's, that's pretty funny. And, um, and Freddy has lines like, I've got the need for speed. And it, it, it Which looks... is actually, we do get to see all the kids graduate from high school and there's, a, there's even a comment about that. Because they're, they're trying to get him a sports scholarship and, uh, that's what they tell. That's what they tell the recruiter from the college. That's right, and they blow like nearly ten minutes on the scene of them graduating from high school. They all look too old to be in high school, but it's a movie, whatever. But I mean, if you thought the teens were um, stick figures in Elm Street Four, they're even worse here in Elm Street Five. Well, they all have their one thing. 
Yes, but like there, you don't get development. You don't really get the feeling that these are friends. Um, it just comes off cross as very rushed. But um, what did what did you think of the uh, the effects in this in this death? What did you think of the mechanical Freddy head? Mechanical Freddy head was okay, but I really liked the the stuff of the the gears and the wires of the bike getting embedded in the guy's arms. Um, this scene was cut up a bit for the R-rated version, but it it's still you get to see a lot of the effects. Uh, it, it, it's a later death where someone gets fed food that really got chopped up by the MPAA. Um, but I think it's I think it's well done. I think it it I mean yeah it's weird in that you uh, instead of people getting chased or something it's a scene on a highway in a dream that's sort of strange for this series. But we know what what's funny watch watching this and I don't it's just enough that I wonder if one film influenced another. But this whole motorcycle death scene. It's very reminiscent of the motorcycle scene from uh, 1992's uh, uh, Wicked City, which is a Chinese film based on a Japanese urban horror novel. Hmm. Have you ever seen this? No. So what, one of the things they play around with this is that the villains, who are like these extra-dimensional monsters, have weird technology, including like this weird biomechanical like pinball machine that you can have sex with. But there's a scene where the detectives get into an elevator in this high-rise, and the elevator is one of these biomechanical creations, and the elevator starts attacking them. And what one of the guys does is he rips parts out of the elevator, assembles them into a motorcycle and then like fights the machine by riding it as a motorcycle like trying to reassemble it as the motorcycle's trying to atta- uh, attack him and a lot of the the effects in both those both these sequences are very very similar to the point where I'm I'm wondering if the makers of Wicked City saw this movie and and thought ooh that's a good idea we got to put this in because the whole scene seems so arbitrary in Wicked City to go from elevator to motorcycle yeah, it could have been, because that would have been a few years after this one. Oh, the, um, yeah, but... You know, one of the characters uh, in the film uh, is, is her friend Greta, who, her, you know, at the graduation ceremony, her parents were getting on her about, you know, oh, don't eat that food, you have to look uh, nice. Yeah, they're trying to push her into this whole sort of model actress area, and uh, her family is really waspy. And I like that she's aware of that, and she even mocks them. Oh, well, excuse me, friends, I have to go grit my teeth in front of the paparazzi. And just does that perfect New England comedy wasp voice, that Jim Bacchus voice. Uh, I gotta say, I, re- I really liked her. I'm really upset that she that she died as early in the film as she did. I thought her character had some potential. And the special features, they, they mentioned... That her her death scene was inspired by Monty Python's Meaning of Life. I could see that. Which, um, if you haven't seen it, Freddy Krueger, you know, feeds food until she explodes. But it's uh, well, she, she's at this like super waspy dinner party. Yes, and she it implies she falls asleep at the table, and Freddy Krueger comes in as as a uh, a waiter. And I really, I really, there's there's several things going on in this scene which are good things to have, but none of them really go far enough. But you know, Freddy. Her chair turns into this horrible rusted metal high chair, which he traps her in by sliding the table down. Because, and that's really cool because 
as, as far as like symbolism goes, because her, her family really is, uh, even though she's now a high school graduate wanting to go on to college, her family is infantilizing her, and the mm. men around her are infantilizing her, trying to reduce her to this kind of like human object. And you know, so so the fact that that in her nightmare she's trapped in a high chair is 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 very is is very significant. But then Freddie comes out with like these things that are half baby dolls, half food, which I believe he calls in a real groaner of a line, pate de barbe, mm-hmm. and starts force feeding her. But like her face swells up into this grotesque baby face until she chokes to death. And and yet I really feel like her whole body should be inflating and her whole body should be turning into this, not like necess- not necessarily like obese, but like a real sort of baby fat baby doll thing. I think that's where they wanted to go, but instead they just give her these puffy cheeks, which instead makes her look like a contented hamster. Yeah, the the uncut version is a lot more gory, and a lot of her body. I think the body might even explode at some point. Like it, it, it's pretty gory, and they they had to cut a lot out to get an R rating, unfortunately, because the MPAA was being a bit stricter on horror films. Other, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, or, uh, Friday the Thirteenth. Some of those had the same problems because of that. Um, and yeah, she's a fun character. It's excuse me, it's hard to to see that happen. Um, you also have a character that likes to draw comics, and oh he, yeah, his uh, nightmare is a little bit like the Take on Me video. But then, unfortunately, you get Super Freddy, and he's not played by Freddy by um, Robert England. Yeah, it looked like it. it like it's, the, it's a stunt. It looked like a, a different man. guy. Yeah. Like, the, the chin is different, and I know you're trying to make it, like, this big buff uh, caricature, but it's not Robert England, and you could have had him in a fake muscle suit, and I think it would have worked fine. Yeah, and I guess I guess that's... They should have gone further with... Because I, I will say, the, the, the Night Prowler character, the, the guy's comic book character that he turns into when he realizes he's in a dream and tries to take control of it... It's not a bad design. In many ways, it echoes a lot of the design excesses and trends of late '80s, early '90s comic books. Uh, you know, this guy, this guy would not be out of place in a Frank Miller Daredevil uh, story. Um, but Freddy's and Freddy turning into a more old school. Clearly, they're trying to go for like a George Reeves Superman look. Yeah, but they don't take it far enough. Like he should have like his own bad horror-based superhero symbol with like slashes for the Superman S or something. Uh, it's just in- instead it is just a bulked-up Freddy. They they really they really could have gone further. I would have loved to have seen, for lack of a better term, a symbolic fight between old- an old-school superhero and a new-school superhero played out with these characters. So how do, how do you think the whole plot works of the dream child in this well, film because I find it difficult I, to follow. I do like I do like when they introduce the mystery because it's established in the previous film that Freddy can use Alice's dreams as a springboard to go into other people's dreams, but Freddy's now attacking people when she's awake and I I I wish that that was a mystery, but because this is called the dream child and because we know that she's been having sex with her boyfriend from the beginning, like the moment that idea is introduced, it's like, oh, oh, her unborn child is dreaming, and that's how Freddy's attacking people. So they don't allow that to be a mystery, and I think using that as a mystery would have been really intriguing. But beyond that, so we find out that Freddy's Freddy's plan. So Freddy found a way back back again. 
And Freddy's plan is, going back to the idea that he takes the souls of his victims, he's taking the souls of his victims now, and he's feeding them to her unborn child, apparently in the hopes that the child will be like him. But they don't really, like, I don't understand how that's supposed to work. Like, the, the fact that Freddy is visiting the child in dreams, and the unborn child thinks Freddy is his, like, is his secret friend... That should be enough. I mean, frank, frankly, for this movie to work, it should take place several years later. The child should already be born, and it should be about a child having Freddy as their imaginary friend. Hmm. That's what this movie should be about. But the fact that it's about an unborn child who only appears in dreams as this as this this kid Jacob, it just it doesn't quite work. Um, well, and then the, you, you know the Jacob is like what like five or six years old and except the baby's an infant like that's sort of confusing well it, ra- it raises interesting metaphysical questions that this movie is completely in, in incapable of and unwilling to address hmm. although i will i will say this i do like that it is brought up well why not have an abortion but she does want to keep the child i like that the fact that that's even an option is at least brought up yeah, um, they could have gone into that more. Maybe had get some more dramatic juice out of that situation. Um, what else in here? Well, we get the girl on... Uh, she has a nightmare that I think could have been cool, where she likes to dive off the high board, and we get the high board sort of splitting. But then she just kind of jumps into nothingness, into a void. Well, well, she, that's because she doesn't even she doesn't even die. Then she's mm-hmm. uh, she like goes into this that weird water tank. Uh, but Alice comes for her, and Alice at least that time Alice rescues her. Uh, it's I guess it's like you know there's a, sh- a shocking there's not that many lethal dreams in this movie. No, there's not, and um, yeah, it doesn't deliver on the dreams even for something called the Dream Child. You you do get. Interesting imagery, I think, near the end where Alice and Freddy face off and you get this kind of crooked um, baby carriage with spikes on it that she impales Freddy with. I kind of like yeah, that. Yeah, that's one thing I like. So again, she, she doesn't have any of the powers that she accumulated in previous films, but I do like that she can use the architecture of Freddy's dreams against him. That she took something that he included in the dreamscape to frighten her and uses it as a weapon against him. That That is so smart. I wish this movie had more, more of that. Hmm. Like, I guess that's kind of how I wish it ended. I wish that Alice and Jacob used their combined psychic strength to turn the nightmare against Freddy. That would have been pretty damn cool. But we don't we don't get that. We only get Jacob being encouraged to abandon Freddy. Although, that final scene with all the M.C. Escher imagery in the dreamscape, that is very, very visually satisfying. And I think they use that dream architecture very well. Well, and you get the horrific stuff of what Freddy's head trying to separate from Alice. Oh, yeah. That, there's a lot of Clive well Barkery imagery in this movie, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. one of them. I mean, even yeah, the dreamscapes, and, most of them look like the realm of the Cenobites. And um, what's interesting is, is a, a, a clip on there I saw with the director, Stephen Hopkins. He said, you know, this we knew this M.C. Escher thing had been used in other movies like Labyrinth, but he wanted to kind of do a Nightmare on Elm Street spin on it. And uh, you get a lot of uh, green screen, you get a lot of smoke, um, you know, sort of gothic look to everything. And I think it, 
I think it works. It at least makes a very visually interesting final showdown, which we haven't had always in these Nightmare on Elm Street pictures. Yeah, visually, it's very satisfying. I like that they chose that motif and they just they wrung every drop uh, of, of visual poetry out of it that they could. So that, so that being so, it's a it's a feast for the senses in, in its way. There's an odd clip, um, a 30-second behind-the-scenes clip on the DVD, where it has um, Freddy Krueger is... It's Robert England as Freddy Krueger in the makeup, and you can see there's the M- some M.C. Escher stares against a green screen, and he's talking to the director, but he's just talking in his regular speaking voice, which it's very <laughs> strange to see Freddy Krueger just speak in Robert England's voice. Where he's like, okay, so what expression should I do when I climb up these stairs? It's a bit, you expect him to do it in his deep voice, and he's, he doesn't, because it's just an actor in a costume asking a director a question, but it's a very strange, out-of-context clip. Hmm. And do you think the stuff with the um, the nun works in this film? Because you get a little bit of that at the beginning of the end, but not as much as you might think. Well, we've already had Amanda Kruger as kind of a guardian angel figure. In the and in this one, film. she's younger. She's not old, which is less creepy. Well, she's dead. She doesn't have a body. I don't see why she can't appear in whatever age she wants to. I don't. I don't find the difference in age to be <clears throat> to be to be hurtful uh, or detrimental to the film. I don't. I guess I kind of like the idea of Amanda Kruger as this guardian angel figure, as a counterpoint to Freddy, or as a, or as a rogue spirit trying to minimize the 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 damage that her son does. I just guess I guess we've had two films now that have had both Amanda Kruger and Freddy Kruger, mm-hmm. and in neither of those films has their relationship as mother and son ever been explored, and that's. That's that's something that should be brought up. I mean, how did she? It's it's her son. How did she raise him? What did she do to? Did she? What did she do to try to raise him as a good person? Or is he just fated to be evil for the beginning? I want there to be context for their relationship, and that's always ignored. And I find that to be the most disappointing thing about these movies. Yeah, you. I think there'd be something there, or maybe some irony. Maybe the nun would also have dream powers, but you don't... I mean, you, you get at the beginning sort of the, the thing where he says, like, oh, you won't get me this time, bitch, but um, it, it's really... She's more of a device than anything. I, I agree. She's yeah. not much of a character. The Although I do I do kind of like when, when like the souls are coaxed out of Freddy's body. Although the souls are coaxed out of Freddy's body. They're not coaxed out of Jacob. Um, so who knows what happened to them. Uh, but... Uh, like when, when when all the energy is ripped out of Freddy, he turns into a fetus who then gets sucked back into Amanda Krueger. Yeah, it's um not not entirely satisfying, but at least it's more interesting than the ending of say Elm Street Four. Like visually, it's interesting, but mm-hmm. again, it, it's it's sort of like the the metaphysical rules of Freddy outside of just haunting people's dreams are just so chaotic. Well, like I guess that's how we defeat him this time. Like, he's brought down a different way each movie, and they're never permanent. So I'm like, okay, so is he going to escape from her womb again? I know he's coming back. Well, and the last... I can't even care that he's been defeated this time. The last scene in the movie just made me groan. Where we had the, uh, you know, it's sort of an epilogue where the, the kid is... 
with the mom and they're having a picnic and then in the background we see girls doing jump rope with the oh yeah the creepy freddy the creepy freddy frame and it's like ah you don't need that every time i know i mean this movie is just sort of slow and disappointing and it um it it just feels like it didn't need to be made and it's it's disappointing after the dream master had very inventive dream sequences this one it just it comes across as very half baked. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right. It is half of an idea across the board. Everything is a, everything is halfway. Like it wants to be darker, but then it still has like goofy elements. Like Freddy is the waiter. It wants um. It brings back the nurse, but then doesn't the whole do reefer the madness. Mother. Reefer, well, yes. Well, you know what? Or was Reefer, that the previous film? They're, oh. Um, they're bleeding together for me now. Much like the dreams. Uh, no, I think <laughs> Reefer Madness was this film, but, you know, Reefer Madness is a. That's a specific reference to. That was one of the first films New Line Cinema distributed. <laughs> when Bob Shea was getting started, he got these public domain, or, you know, got these either public domain or close to it films for pretty cheap, and then would program. Um, them as like a little film festival thing that he would take to different college campuses. And that's how New Line Cinema started, was just as a film distribution company. Um, and then Nightmare on Elm Street was the first film they financed. Completely by themselves, that they made from scratch, and it was a big hit. So what do you think of the the hip-hop song that plays over the credits, which unfortunately doesn't explain the plot of this movie? Uh, it's unfortunate. It doesn't work tonally, especially when it's ending with the slower one, two, Freddy's coming for you. And then, and then this like sort of new Jack swing rap number late eighties. I mean, it's, it it sounds like something off the Rocky five soundtrack. It's well, like not to, not to, um, like not, not to show too much disrespect, but, but this particular song, it's only a, again, halfway, it's a half step above my name is Caleb and I'm here to say I like working <laughs> IT in a major way. Yeah, it's... Like, the ending is the worst part because he just starts reciting words that begin with the letter L. Mm, it, it's like, oh, wait, oh, yeah. wait, did Grover from Sesame Street show up? It's of the time, but it doesn't really... You know, you want something creepier, or maybe in, in some of the other films you had, like, heavy metal music or something that kind of worked, but this, it's like... It, it just feels like it's from a completely different movie. Um, it didn't work at all for me. Oh! I, I, I don't want to end on a negative. Can I say something po- really positive about this movie? Go for it. So in the previous movie, Alice's father was suffering from some pretty severe alcoholism. The father comes back, played by the same actor... And his alcoholism from the previous film is acknowledged, but we also see his journey to sobriety. Yeah, that, that's a nice touch. And um, I love that he's become a better father for her. I think that's really good. That is, and you know, it is. These films are more interesting when the father, when the parents have flaws, and that they try to have some sort of an arc. It reminds me a bit of what we see with uh, Nancy's father in the first film. Um. Is that her name, Nancy? Heather Lagenkamp's character? I, I believe that was. Oh, that's another thing. The fact that apparently everyone Freddy who's ever killed is all buried in the same plot in the cemetery. Yes, that's <laughs> odd, to say the least. Um, but there you go. I think, yeah, Elm Street 5. That, 
That I was, was so odd. I thought that that was going to turn out to be a dream. Right. And I, geez, yeah. This movie has some interesting things. I like the the weird looking crib. I like uh, the motorcycle dream sequence. But you know, those. Other than that, I mean, I would have to say this movie is a sequel. No, it. This is uninspired. Um, they tried, but it's. It's just. I found it very slow and sluggish and uncreative, and I, I don't know. It, it it could have been much better. I'm going to give this a sequel, yes. And the reason I'm giving it a sequel, yes, is because we're now five films deep. The sixth film is when they would go nuts. And I would want to see that sixth film. Hmm. And we'll talk about the other Elm Street films at a later date uh, of our choosing, because we like to split these bigger ones up. Um, all right, so for, for pitch a sequel, I think what I had in mind was to... Um, I would have it take place in Thailand, and it would be about the the story of, you know, you do kind of like a Thailand version of Elm Street, where it's based on, it would open with the scene from the first film where Johnny Depp talks about, oh, there's there's a news story of this guy in Thailand who couldn't fall asleep and then went crazy. And you kind of go into that and you do, um, you know, things with Thai ghosts or sort of Thai mythology in there. And, and you do the same Elm Street concept, but you set it in the early 80s in a, in a different country. I think that way you can freshen it up a little bit. Interesting. I, th- I think I think my my own pitch of sequel. I'm just gonna do. I'm my pitch of sequel would be what this movie should have been, where it's about a kid and Freddy is their imaginary friend, and the adults in this kid's life start to like are people who grew up during the time when Freddy was killing people in their dreams. They may have even been people who managed to escape Freddy. And they realize what's going on, and it's all about them. Well, how can we separate this kid from his imaginary friend? And it's it's all going to be a metaphor for how uh, how mental illness in uh, in prepubescent children is all is is often misdiagnosed, mistreated, or or, or covered up with the overprescription of drugs. I'd want the film to be about something, and that's what it would be about. So, does this mean at first Freddie would? tell the kid not to refer to him as Freddy because if the kid all of a sudden is talking about his little play friend Freddy that might give it away too early I you know quite quite possibly like Fre- Freddy's not dumb although at the same time I like the idea that Freddy's spent so much time as a weird dream ghost that maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe he likes the idea that the adults are terrified because he figures they've never been able to stop me before. Why should I think they'll be able to stop me now? And and maybe he even teaches, like, maybe... That could even be it. Like, you know, he could maybe be even teaching the kid, like, weird, like a dark, sinister version of the Freddy Nursery rhyme, and he's teaching it to other kids. And I think that's something we we probably ought to address. So every movie has had the girls in white singing the Freddy Nursery rhyme. I've often wondered, are we supposed to take from that that they are the ghosts of his children victims when he was alive? Is this how they try to warn the living? I think I would explore that in this movie as well. Hmm... And that perhaps maybe even the kid gets a second imaginary friend who's one of these girls. 
Could be. That's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's never the same actors, though, playing the little girls, and they don't... Well, well yeah, they could. They didn't find anyone who was perpetually five years old, like Jefty. Sure. And um, that's your Harlan Ellison reference for the show. Good old Harlan Ellison. He's still alive. Yes, he is. Although, how old is he? I think he's nineties or something. He was. I'm, I, I'm sure. I'm sure he must be. But he's he's still he's still out there being being the the rascal he's always been. Eighty three. Okay. Oh. Oh. Never mind. Younger than I thought. Just a pup. Um, that's not entirely fair. Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, let's move on to what you're watching, Thrasher. What have you been watching? Oh, boy. Well, um, I took your advice and I watched the first part of the movie Bob breakdown of Batman v Superman colon Dawn of Justice. And what did you think of it? Overall, uh, it's actually it's it's better than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I, I tend to be skeptical about like Internet nitpicking videos, but that's not what this is. Well, and the weird thing about this... movie Bob is he had been doing a, a series called Really That Good where he looks at back at things like Ghostbusters or um, movies like that to see, or Transformers the movie, I think was one he did in that series of the cartoon his, his movie. one about Transformers the movie is fantastic. Yeah, he definitely knows a lot about that subject. Um, but And he swore he would he doesn't like the, the culture of film negativity online, which there's quite a lot of YouTube channels that do that. I can agree that. with that sentiment. Um, but yet, he said, after like he saw Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, he was so livid and he had so many thoughts <laughs> that yeah. he decided to break down and, and do it. Um, and, and that's something I gotta, I gotta applaud him. Uh, the, the first part, it's very well researched and very well thought out. It's, I think it's a bit too fast paced, which uh, uh, that, although that is his style, uh, I think it's, it's a bit too rapid fire. But I am very interested to seeing part two and part three. I, I watched another video where he he announced that it's probably going to end up being a three parter. Is it? Oh my god! It'll be like four yeah. hours long. Um, that's pretty funny. And really, the first part is just preamble. It's him providing context for the Superman and Batman mythologies in both comic books and film and animation before moving on to discussing specifically that film. Right. Um. I've been, you know, it's it's coming around Black Friday and some of the sales for that stuff has already started. And so I got a, a video game that was on sale that I've been meaning to get, but I wasn't willing to pay full price for. I'm talking about South Park, the fractured butt hole. That's something I'm looking to pick up. I had such a good time with uh, with Stick of Truth. Uh, I, I'm definitely going to pick this one up at some point, too. Yeah, you know, I think right now, the if you have PlayStation Plus or something on the, on the PlayStation, it may be on sale on Xbox as well. I got it for like $40. And if if you get it, you also get a um, if you look at your download queue, you also get a copy of the first game, um, mm, cool. sort of reoptimized for the modern systems. And I quite like it. And sort of um, you know, I wasn't that familiar with the the South Park Coon episode, so I also caught up on some of those as well. And it's um, it's it's pretty funny so far. It, definitely one thing different from the first game is the battles. Um, we're a bit more tactical. You move around, and they have sort of hexes on the screen, and you kind of move oh. around. Uh, and and the attacks can do different um, hit different distances, and that that gives a bit more complexity to the battle system. And it looks like you can 
keep on swapping in and out skills uh, in different DNA slots to make your character have different powers to kind of make them um, how you want to. Uh, one, one thing I do wonder, and I'm not that far in the game, is uh, in, in the first South Park game, I don't mean the very first, but, um, oh, what is it? The Stick of Truth. Stick of Truth. Right. You could, at a certain point, you could either be on, on Cartman's side or Kyle's side. Yes. And I'm wondering if in this game it has something similar, because right now at the beginning you're just with Cartman. And I'm hoping at some point it splits, because I don't like Cartman very much. Yeah, I, I like that that choice. I like that choice uh, in in the first game and the the dynamic that that had. And I went with Kyle with the Wood Elves, and I it, I do think if I I replay the first one, which I probably will, I think I'll try it on Cartman's side. Uh, now I do I do have to to ask. Um, do you? So I, I despite the fact that it is a parody, I did find Stick of Truth to be one of the best fantasy uh, console games I ever played. Do you think that this is one of the best superhero games you've ever played in the console? I don't know. I mean, I really like the uh, Marvel Ultimate Alliance superhero mm. games. They're sort of like Diablo. and uh... Yeah, no, I, I, I would not say it's one of the best superhero stuff. But, I mean, also you, you get... The the powers are really clever. And what one, one funny conceit, at least in the beginning of the game... Is kids have um, is butters as Professor Chaos spills oh, yeah. um, um, like red Legos outside of places, and the kids say that's lava, and you can't walk on top of it, <laughs> which is very much something. Um, you know, little kids would do, and and I did actually last night. I, I stayed up kind of late and checked to see if. Um, to, to watch those episodes of South Park with Kuhn to get more context. And I don't know if it was really worth my time because the video game has so many more characters than you see on the the episodes. But did you did you see the, the Cthulhu episodes? I did, I did. That, that was pretty funny. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Where Cartman's on top of Cthulhu, and then at one point he um, sort of pets him and kind of curls up like a kitty. On, well, I don't he, know if he you gets noticed. a theme song. But that that is a very very accurate recreation of the kitten and bulldog scene from the Chuck Jones cartoon Feed the Kitty. Oh no, I didn't notice that. Yeah, it is almost frame for frame the exact same animation, but they do it in the South Park style. It's delightful. Hmm. Uh, the other thing I love, well, one of the things I loved about uh, that trilogy of episodes is that you see boxes for the board game Arkham Horror in the background of several shots, but they all have numbers by them. And the highest number is the, was the number of the most recent Arkham Horror expansion of that time. I think one more came out after that episode. Hmm. Uh, yeah. One thing about this video game, I thought was sort of surprising is that it came out so quickly, so to speak. Because the Stick of Truth was delayed quite a while, and the whole time Trey Parker and Matt Stone were complaining about how difficult it was to make a game and to do the writing and the voices for it. But um, it must have sold pretty well, because the this, this second one came out pretty quickly. Well, do you think there was any parallel development between the two games? No, but, I mean, it it, it does look like, you know, you know, the village is pretty much the same that you walk around in, although it's updated with stuff that's happened in the show. 
um, which is interesting to see. And you, um, it, it does pick up right where the first one leaves off. So I think if you haven't played the first one, it's not necessary, but you'll get more out of the opening. Hmm. I can go with that. I loved, I, I will say one of the highlights that first game for me was when you're in the alien spaceship and you keep finding audio logs. <laughs> yeah. The audio logs describe a completely different game. <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm glad somebody I'm glad somebody finally took the starch out of those stuffed shirts that put audio logs and everything. Right, and that was making fun of a lot of other games at the time that did audio logs. Lots of other games. I mean, after well, Bioshock, Bioshock and, yeah. that just became something that every every game got. And I think it's kind of lazy too because you you can just have this rambling monologue that goes on and on. Well, like, sometimes it works because it can help give you information on characters. It can give more sort of... It can bring more depth and realism to the world you're inhabiting. It can also even subtly include clues for things that will happen later. And other times it does just seem like filler. Like, I think the, the worst actually is Bioshock 2, when there's a whole collection of, uh, of audio logs that are only there to tie into the AR game that was done to promote Bioshock 2. Uh, and then on top of that, they try to cram in a stupid twist based on those audio logs. Mm. That is just like, I don't care. By the time that twist, by the time the twist is revealed that the father who broke into Rapture to search for his kidnapped daughter got forcefully turned into a big daddy drone, I just didn't care. And that's something I should care about. It does look like in this uh, South Park game, you can choose to either, at some point, you can choose to either stick with the Coon and Friends or join the Freedom Pals. Hmm. And the Freedom Pals are the Mysterions group. Cool. So, But yeah, yeah this, I'd recommend this, it. This is something I'll check out. I'll definitely share my thoughts on it after I've had a chance to play it. Though it probably will be another month or two. Right. Um, yeah, let's see. I think that's about it um anything else you want to plug or talk about oh no well, we uh i uh as of last night i finished the, coloring the last illustration for 100 oddities for a sewer which is another one of the uh it's the latest it will be the latest in the oddities book series uh authored by myself uh and clint staples uh so hopefully uh, provided uh, our layout guy stays on schedule, that might actually be available by the time this episode drops. So you can find that on drivethroughrpg.com, uh, onebookshelf.com. And if it hasn't dropped by the time you hear this episode, there's ten other Oddities books that are up there that you can check out. Um, things are progressing wonderfully uh, for uh, for uh, Wrath and Glory, the uh, new Warhammer 40,000 tabletop RPG, which I'm writing for. Uh, everything's going on, on track for that. I got final approval uh, for the, the chapter that I wrote. I'm looking forward to picking up another chapter. I'm hoping that happens, but I can't really say any more without skirting to the edge of my NDA. But there's there's I've got some work that you'll be able to pick up soon. Uh, and I hope I hope you all enjoy it. You find yourself having to read uh, with the Warhammer stuff, and if you can't talk about it, that's fine. But um, you find yourself having to read like novels or, or source books or something to get more um, context uh, for usually, what you're writing about. You know, it's it's funny. Back when I used to write for the Fantasy Flight Games one, there was an emphasis on reading what was coming out in the tie-in novels. Uh, uh, 
with with this while the novels are a part of it, the main focus has been reading the new source books. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that I was able to actually look through a lot of new material. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it, it is much more about going through what's in the source books um, as far as far as our, our research for writing it. I see. Um, it's always amazing to me how many of um, how the, how those books still remain uh, popular and they still have like some pretty big series going on well they've, they've done like it's the the whole like horus heresy series kind of oh yeah reinvented it's... the way they were they were doing uh, fiction uh and th those have been ridiculously popular there's like dozens of those i think i was trying to flip through yeah. went to the store and it, i was very confused i keep wanting to to pick up they they, they did so the 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 they did the the Eisenhorn trilogy, and then it's spin-off, the Ravenor trilogy, and there's like a new trilogy of Eisenhorn versus Ravenor, which I kind of want to pick up. Sounds cool. So uh, so next time, listeners, we'll be talking about the uh, live-action Transformers films, 1, 2, and 3, over the next few weeks, and that should wrap us up for 2017. Um, follow us, uh, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Follow me at Internet Mayor. Follow the show at SequelCast2, uh, for SequelCast2. This is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Sane. That's the end of the franchise for now, bitch. Very good. And I, I, think I'll put that, I can't believe that is his catchphrase, is just putting bitch on the end of statements. The, the scary Terry from Rick and Morty is barely an exaggeration. <laughs> The theme song to Sequel Cast 2 was written and performed by Mark with a C. Listen to his music at markwithac.com. Follow Sequel Cast 2 on Twitter at Sequel Cast 2. Listen to the show streaming on Stitcher. And don't forget to support the show on Patreon for as low as $1 a month at patreon.com slash sequelcast2. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 